What's up, y'all? This is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook. My guest today is Dr. Brian McGorry. He's an orthopedic joint replacement surgeon at Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine. We're going to talk about perioperative hypothermia, how to prevent that, a pilot study that Dr. McGorry did with his patients, and also touch on, really kind of dive deep into the whole controversy behind bear huggers and forced air warmers. So before we get to that, I want to introduce Dr. McGorry to you. He earned his bachelor's degree in chem bio at Cornell, attended medical school at Columbia, followed by residency in orthopedic surgery at the Mayo Clinic Graduate School. There, he also earned a master's degree in orthopedic research. He then went on to do a fellowship through Harvard University at Massachusetts General Hospital in adult hip and knee reconstruction. He has served as the research director in orthopedics at Maine Medical Center and the founding editor-in-chief of Arthroplasty Today, which is a publication of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. Uh, so Dr. McGorry recently conducted this pilot study at Maine Medical Center in which he evaluated perioperative body temperature in patients undergoing total joint surgery. All the patients in the study received preoperative warming at 41 degrees Celsius with 3M's Bear Hugger Forced Air Warmer. And intraoperatively, all the patients received warm cotton blankets. They were draped in warm blankets that came straight out of a common blanket warmer. They also had inline IV fluid warming with 3M's Ranger Fluid Warming Device. Now, the independent variable for the patients in the study included draping those patients in the, in the study group with an additional reflective space blanket as kind of a reflective body warmer. So they got the warm blankets right over their body, and then they were draped in this uh, reflective space blanket. So Dr. McGorry will discuss the results of this pilot study in the podcast, some of which were published as a letter to the editor in the Journal of Arthroplasty, which I've linked in the show notes. So just to review, perioperative hypothermia has been linked to numerous bad outcomes for patients, including increased infection, delayed recovery, increased blood loss, disruptions in coagulation, and cardiac events. Not to mention being cold is just uncomfortable for patients, especially postoperatively. Perioperative temperature regulation is also linked to Medicare reimbursement with the goal of one temperature reading of at least 35.5 degrees Celsius within 30 minutes immediately before or 15 minutes after the anesthesia stop time. If hospitals meet this mark, they may see a slight increase in reimbursement, and if they miss this mark, they may miss out on a substantial percentage of reimbursement or essentially be fined substantially. So there's significant precedence for maintaining perioperative normothermia. During the podcast, we're going to hint at the controversy with forced hot air warmers that's been widely discussed in peer-reviewed as well as popular news publications. I want to roll through the conversation with Brian uninterrupted as much as possible so you can hear how he and his team approached this controversy and still achieved normothermia for his patients intraoperatively. But at the end of the show, I'm going to come back and I'm going to unpack the story of the bear hugger so that you know where we stand on that whole situation. It is a crazy story that twists through legal battles, dubious medical literature, and corporate competition in the medical device industry. So be sure to stay tuned to the end of the podcast. And with that, let's get to the show. Well, Dr. Brian McGorry, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm stoked to have you today. Thank you, John, for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. So fill us in a little bit on who you are, what your practice entails, and what kind of initiatives you've been working on with the orthopedic surgery group. 
Uh, thank you. So my name is Brian McGrory. I'm a medical doctor and a joint replacement surgeon at Maine Medical Partners in Portland. Um, my practice style is to offer, you know, up-to-date, cutting-edge, evidence-based uh, treatment for hip and knee arthritis. So I'm a joint replacement doctor. Um, I enjoy uh, teaching and mentoring students at the Tufts Medical School, where I'm a clinical professor. Also involved uh, nationally as the founding editor-in-chief of an online uh, periodical, Arthroplasty Today, and I'd um, recommend to your listeners to check that out. It's uh, free and uh, very educational if they have interest in uh, arthroplasty-type topics. I've published uh, a lot, you know, since uh, I was a trainee, over 100 peer-reviewed articles, and so I'm very interested in, you know, looking carefully at problems so that you can essentially take the answer uh, that you come up with and, and move the ball forward. So we'll talk about that today. Our current initiatives um, center around safe transitioning of patients to outpatient joint replacement surgery. And um, I'm also working um, on a textbook currently on anterior-based muscle sparing hip replacements, one of the things that we're known for here at Maine Medical Center. Um, so that's just a thumbnail sketch of where I am. Oh, that's awesome, Brian. Thanks so much. Uh, we're going to talk about hypothermia management and prevention in orthopedic surgery and joint replacement specifically today. What other projects in terms of quality improvement uh, have been going on or maybe are on the horizon with the orthopedic group? We've been doing a lot of different initiatives. Our current QI project is looking at unscheduled return to the emergency room at 30 and 90 days following hip replacement surgery. As you might imagine, this is a big inconvenience for patients and expense and obviously can lead to poorer outcomes. So what we're trying to do is um, hone in on what type of unexpected uh, presentations uh, can be thought of ahead of time and minimized. Um, we're really looking at the scope of the issue first, and then we're going to implement a plan to reduce any unnecessary visits. Previously, we've done uh, projects on methicillin-resistant staph aureus screening, and um, uh, as we're going to talk about today, uh, the prevention of perioperative hypothermia. So a couple of years ago, you spearheaded this effort to prevent perioperative hypothermia in total joint surgery at Maine Medical Center. What got you interested in that or, or what, how much of a problem was that uh, before you started this quality improvement project? Well, we don't know the exact prevalence and that, I think that's a great point. Um, we hadn't necessarily thought about that. We knew from our medical education and from continuing medical education that hypothermia can be an issue. It's uh, more prevalent in trauma patients where there's kind of uh, exposure in the field and whatnot. But as we're getting better and better at elective surgery, we're really trying to minimize any uh, outliers and any risks to the patients. So we had kind of changed our approach to um, intraoperative and preoperative warming over time. And the impetus for this study was uh, some information that was coming out about uh, one type of forced hot air warmer called the bear hugger and how it might affect airflow during surgery. So in the operating room in total joint replacement surgery, we're super concerned with infection. And one of the things since the beginning, since hip replacements and joint replacements were initially brought about was minimizing 
intraoperative infection by controlling the airflow. Yeah. So we have laminar flow, kind of like a waterfall of air that comes from the ceiling and goes out along the floors on the edges of the OR. And a bear hugger, a fair, forced hot air warming tool during the case, is thought to mess with that flow of air. So the filtered air gets pushed back up off the floor and that might have you know, skin contamination and carry bacteria. So the question that was brought up is, is the intraoperative forced hot air warming technique to maintain normothermia necessary? Okay, that's a great question. That's a great question. Let's talk about this concern and this controversy. So there has been a lot published in the literature about bear huggers and, you know, or forced hot air warmers perioperatively and this concern about uh, disruptions to laminar flow, uh, concerns over contamination of the actual equipment with bacteria um, and things that may result in surgical side infections. So can you talk a little bit about maybe where this emphasis on forced hot air warmers came from in terms of the controversy in the literature and then how that, how like surgeons have responded to that controversy? It's a great question. And it's, I think, to some degree unresolved. So, you know, when we talk about normothermia and infection, let's just briefly kind of start there as a foundation. There's a rich amount of literature in the non-arthroplasty educational literature on infection and normothermia. Recently, let's say in the last decade, there's been more and more information coming out uh, in joint replacement because joint replacements are some of the most common surgeries done in the United States and in, in the Western world. And so there's a big expense involved with complications, specifically surgical site infections, and an impetus for patients and doctors to do better. So that's the basis of why we care about this. Yeah. Um, the forced hot air warmers traditionally have been used, um, although there's also convection uh, warmers, right? So there's electrical and water convection warmers that have been used. And that has been one of the strategies that's just been traditionally used to help with, uh, you know, patient care in the OR. Um, at the same time, OR warmth is very important for surgeons and the medical staff, because if you're uncomfortable during the surgery, there's some literature saying that a distracted surgeon or a distracted nurse dealing with, you know, too much heat, uncomfortable heat in the operating room can make the outcomes worse as well. So, so that's kind of the, as we're building the foundation yeah. forward. Then there was some business decisions made where the inventor of uh, one of these forced air systems, this is my understanding of it, started a different convection company. And then he looked at the previous company, the forced hot air company and said, hey, this could be a problem with infection. And just by raising that question without any evidence-based research that I know, he kind of worried surgeons and hospital administrators around the country. So at our own institution, uh, the director or the chief of surgery asked us, you know, what we knew about this and whether this was an important, um, you know, uh, factor in the multifactorial yeah. care of patients. So, so essentially... This all started with uh, a business decision yeah, yeah. and companies fighting and not having the medical, you know, evidence-based, you know, literature to back up whether or not it's safe to use forced hot air in joint replacement right, surgery. Right, right. Which I think is fascinating. I just want to highlight that. So 
All right, folks, so here's the deal. The story behind Scott Augustine and the Bear Hugger is pretty epic. I'm going to come back at the end of the podcast and unpack it in a little bit more detail. But what you need to understand right now is that Scott Augustine is the physician anesthesiologist who created the Bear Hugger in the late 1980s. He left the company which was producing the Bear Hugger, and that company was subsequently sold for hundreds of millions of dollars to 3M, which now produces the Bear Hugger. Since that point in time, Dr. Augustine has been on a smear campaign against the bear hugger and forced air warmers in general, all the while marketing a new device which he created, which uses conductive warming. He and his employees and the law firms he's associated with have published numerous articles in peer-reviewed literature questioning the use of the bear hugger, as well as filing lawsuits against 3M, claiming the bear hugger was linked to surgical site infections. Spoiler alert, The largest of these lawsuits included over 5,000 plaintiffs and was dismissed from federal court in August of 2019 due to insufficient evidence linking the bear hugger to surgical site infections. So we'll unpack this story because it gets even crazier at the end of the podcast. But what we need to know right now is that just by posing this question that perhaps forced air warmers are linked to surgical site infections, Dr. Augustine has effectively undermined their use in ORs around the world and made hospitals, surgeons, and anesthesia providers look at this question more closely. All right, back to the show. So with that question being raised, I, th- I think you outlined it very interestingly that like just the, just the question being asked kind of made surgeons and hospital administrators take notice of this. And then look at their own programs and how to address that question. So, uh, which brings us back to your interventions with managing hypothermia perioperatively. With just that question being poised around forced hot air warmers, how did the surgical group respond to that question? Because we we're not using forced hot air warmers perioperatively with joint replacement surgeries. Is that correct? That's correct. So I shouldn't say perioperatively, intraoperatively. 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 Yeah, that's exactly right. So we had a limited amount of resources for this quality improvement project. So we couldn't really, you know, figure out the prevalence of um, hypothermia at our institution. So what we did is we designed a study that essentially compared what we were doing without the hot air warmers. So essentially preoperative warming of the patient for 30 30 minutes and then intraoperatively using cotton uh, blankets on the trunk and the body that's not exposed during the surgery. Like from a blanket warmer. Ju- from a blanket warmer, yeah. yes, that we have, you know, in the um, perioperative um, area. And essentially compared that with the exact same, that was the control group. And then we compared that with a small group of patients that had that plus a space blanket. Okay. One of these reflective blankets that you, um, they make them for the OR, but the type that you would use after a marathon, something yeah. like that. So essentially that was our study group the control group and the study group. And we did a a statistical power analysis to say the minimum number of consecutive patients that would tell us if there was a difference. And we proceeded like that. So that was 60 consecutive patients. And we tried to really limit the number of variables. So we used the exact same protocol. We used the, um, these patients were under a general anesthesia so we didn't do this for spinal anesthesia patients uh, in this pilot study. We used a previously validated way to measure temperature, the temporal uh, probe, and we you know, carefully followed the patients through PACU and then for any perioperative complications. 
And what did you find? What were the results? Well, we found first and foremost that none of the 60 patients, approximately 60 patients, had hypothermia. So that's defined as, you know, a core temperature below 36 Celsius. So essentially preoperatively, intraoperatively, and postoperatively through the PACU stay, no patient became hypothermic. That was a surprise and somewhat distinct from some other reports in the literature that haven't been prospectively done. So if you're essentially just entering data into an electronic medical record and looking backwards, you can see patients that are hypothermic, but you don't really know how those temperatures were obtained. So that was number one. Number two, we found that the control group was not statistically different from the experimental group. So that is to say the blankets, the warmed cotton blankets, were not inferior to the space blankets. So you don't really need space blankets. Right. You can use cotton blankets, preoperative warming, and intraoperative fluid warming. I don't think I mentioned that before, but that's an important part of the protocol. So even though our joint replacement patients don't get a lot of fluids, approximately a liter of fluid, you can imagine that if it's going in at you know a low temperature, let's say the operating room temperature is five degrees below 36 degrees centigrade, that can affect the patient. So, so the key components of this are using blankets intraoperatively, preoperative warming for at least 30 minutes at 38 degrees centigrade, and intraoperative fluid warming at 41 degrees centigrade for the amount of fluid that the patient gets. And with that protocol, we had no patients that became hypothermic. Yeah, that's very interesting. I wonder if... Uh, the the lack of a difference between the two groups. So basically you're saying pre-op forced high air warming, intra-op fluid warmer, intra-op warm blankets, and then the variable being adding a space blanket to that matrix and and not seeing a difference in those control groups. I mean, this was already relatively aggressive perioperative warming of these patients. So maybe that's uh, part of the reason why there were no hypothermia patients caught in this because you're actually being active. Like you're, you're trying to prevent hypothermia, which uh, sounds pretty basic, but we don't always take those steps of particularly preoperative forced hot air warming for 30 minutes. That's exactly right. And during our preparation for the study, I learned about this and I'm much more aware of it. And I hope that my partners are more aware of it now. It's not uncommon for me to go in to do the surgical site safety check with the patient and talk with them about who to contact afterwards in my preoperative visit to the patient and see the uh, forced hot air warmer plugged out. Just inadvertently, the patient went to use the restroom and came back. So I'm, I'm... you know, not obsessive about it per se, but just being aware of it makes a big difference. And I think one of the other findings that's quite interesting is that we saw that when the patient transitioned from the preoperative area to the operating room or from the operating room to the recovery room, that their temperature did drop. And so there was a kind of a sawtooth uh, pattern to the graph. And again, that's a very important thing to be aware of when you're in the OR, transitioning the patient to their, you know, their stretcher, or you're, you know, taking the patient from their stretcher to the operating room bed, you essentially, if you're aware that those transitions can be inflection points in the patient's temperature, you're more apt to get them a warming blanket or to make sure that they're covered uh, early on. And I think all of those little touches, if you will, tend to make a difference. Yeah, I think uh, I would agree with you on a number of points you just made. One, working with you at this institution, 
you do a phenomenal job just trying to educate other people and to talk about this, to bring awareness to this. Every day you say, hey, don't forget the fluid warmer. Can we get a warm blanket for this person? You're not a passive surgeon who's just focused at doing the specific surgery in that interoperative phase. You're really uh, looking at encouraging the pre-op nurses to get the forced hot air warmer on their patients, talking to the anesthesia staff and the interoperative nurses about warm blankets, fluid warmers, maintaining you know coverage of the patient as much as possible. So I think uh, from a leadership standpoint as a surgeon, those things matter. You know, when you, when you have that level of detail uh, with your patients. Furthermore, we'll put the graph of temperature monitoring that you collected out of this pilot study in the show notes to the podcast so that people can see that. But I think that's, uh, it's very insightful to see those temperature dips when patients are obviously going to be most exposed in terms of their body surface. So if they've been bundled up in pre-op and you roll them into the OR, moving them over to a cold OR bed and where they just have that, you know, paper thin gown on, and then we're starting to expose their extremities, prep them, drape them, turn them, those kinds of things. Those are vulnerability moments. And your data showed that that is where the temperature drops happen. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'd like to just step back a little to talk about, you know, the OR leadership. I, I do feel a sense of leadership and I do like to try and communicate and teach, but I will say not only in this project, but in our surgical outcomes, it really is a team effort. And some people, you know, just say that, but I, I really feel like we're colleagues in the operating room. And I feel that the anesthesia team that's in the room is critical for communication and for patient care. And what I've found personally is the nurse anesthetists and anesthesiologists that I work with legitimately care about this. They're super interested in this and they're in a perfect position poised to help during the case. They do a lot of the heavy lifting with, you know, patient monitoring and care. And they were a huge part of this study. This was not just me. You can imagine, you know, six or eight temperature checks during the course of a a patient's care episode. That's, you know, one or two of me and the rest you guys. And so that was a really important uh, part of this uh, protocol. And there was a very high level of engagement. And there still is to this day with, uh, you know, the anesthesia team. And so I'm very grateful for that. And um, I I feel that when we work as a team, we do so much better and we encourage each other. And and it's just excellent for patient outcomes. So, and then, you know, going back to, you know, looking at the different areas where we can, you know, make differences in a patient's temperature over the over the course of their care, one of the other tricks that I've used is they come in the room with the uh, bear hugger blanket on underneath the cotton blanket. When they transition over to the table, we save that bear hugger, right? Because we don't want it to go in the landfill and we put it on as the patient leaves and goes back to the recovery room so that the nurse in the recovery room can just plug that in if they need to, they'll check the temperature. So we're trying to, you know, conserve resources and that you know, as you know, the bear hugger that we use is plastic and it's kind of paper on one side and plastic on the other. And that probably gives some type of temperature lock that the cotton blankets don't get because of moisture. And so again, there's tons of research that can be done on this, but we're trying to be very practical. And so in doing that, I think we've we've really helped patients stay warmer. And what I'd love to do now is spread the word. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity to talk about it. 
And so just to be clear, to kind of look at this from, uh, you know, another like 10,000 foot view for just a moment. So there is this controversy around the use of bear huggers that has been prevalent in the literature for the last 10 years or so. There are studies kind of on the, on the backside of that more recently that have looked at trying to dispel whether or not the disruption to laminar airflow or, you know, bacterial contamination of these forced hot air warmers actually have a correlation to increased surgical site infections. Uh, one of the more recent studies that I looked at basically, you know, cited a, a lack of systematic reviews on this particular issue. So because of this controversy that unfortunately had, you know, economic implications with competing companies involved in it and just, you know, conflicts of interest that undermine evidence-based practice, uh, which makes it very hard and confusing for anesthesia providers, surgeons, hospital administrators. But out of this area of controversy, your team basically said, okay, so we're not going to use forced hot air warmers intraoperatively because we're concerned. There's this unresolved question, but we are going to do all of these other things very aggressively. We're going to use forced hot air warmers preoperatively. We're going to save that bear hugger blanket for the post-op phase as well, but we're also going to be very aggressive aggressive just in general at reminding each other to monitor temperature, keeping the patient covered as much as possible, using inline fluid warmers during the case. And out of those efforts, you have kind of uh, answered the concern over air disruption, surgical side infections in the intraoperative phase, but also been able to maintain normothermia during those cases. That's, that's a great summary. I do think more work needs to be done, but we don't want to make two dramatic conclusions and changes to our process just based on this pilot study. I think that, you know, next steps would be to look at spinal patients because that's much more common in the outpatient transition that we're trying to make. We're using spinal anesthesia. I think that, you know, larger studies need to corroborate our data, but I think in the meantime, what we can do practically at our hospital and with our teams for our patients is you know, continue to really be very aware of this and to react if we find, uh, you know, some patients that are specifically in need of an intervention like the bear hugger or forced hot air. Because I think that you can't say that it's not applicable to anybody, but in general, we've kind of skirted that question of the conflict of interest and lack of systematic reviews by saying, okay, let's not use it until they figure that out or we figure that out. But can we do that safely? And, and I think we can. Yeah, that's great. That's great. In implementing this quality improvement project perioperatively, what are the success points? What, what, do, what did you find in kind of extrapolating, you know, your efforts at, at getting this project at tight temperature control, no more thermia perioperatively going, you know, at a single institution, for advice for other people who may want to implement either a, a tight temperature control program like this where they're at or other quality improvement projects, where are the success points or what were the critical steps that you really found uh, that helped this project be successful? I think that as a practitioner or as practitioners, we should be curious. We should think of um, our role as not just reading the literature and responding to it, but but actually answering some scientific questions that are important to us. So if you, have, if you start with that genesis and then you have a champion that feels that way, that's a, a success point in and of itself. So a, a quality improvement project isn't a burden. It's something 
that you know has bothered you or your team for a while, and now you're going to you know sink your teeth into it. So that's number one. Number two, having a supportive environment with colleagues that are also interested in it, and they don't think that it's a burden, and they think that it will help their patients. That's critical because if you're not getting support, you, you won't be able to do the heavy lifting that's necessary. The third thing I think is to have the resources to do a project carefully using the scientific method so that when you do get results, you can have confidence in them. So I, I think those are kind of three key points that yeah. I think we had. And I would encourage um, other people that are interested in quality improvement to, to hone in on initially when you're setting up a project. Yeah. Where are the points of frustration in this process? Looking at a quality improvement project in terms of a time frame, how do you get those interventions to stick long term? That's, that's a great question. I think um, in my own experience, one of the uh, issues that is frustrating is that the people that support quality improvement from a high level, the administration, are sometimes distracted by a number of different projects and issues that they have. So that they know in general that quality improvement's important, but then they don't really have the energy to support individual projects, at least in, in my experience. So that may not be applicable to all institutions or at all times or all projects, but in my experience, that was a little bit of a frustration. And if I could do something um, better, uh, if I were to do this over, it would be to discuss with the people that you know, asked us initially to do this project to say, okay, here are the deliverables. Okay. Yeah. What are we going to do with them? I would have liked to have some commitment early on uh, about support for implementing our findings if they were relevant. And so I think that was uh, something that I would like to improve on if we do future projects like this. I'd like to see what type of implementation occurs once the project's complete. Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, what keeps you motivated at this stage in your career? You've been you've been doing research for a long time. You're still you're still stoked about orthopedic joint replacement surgery and quality improvement. So, what's that driving force that keeps you motivated? Well, I think it's uh, you know it's a collegial environment. It's uh, being curious. It's helping our patients, and probably in reverse order. What I've found in my career is that we're getting better at what we do, so that small incremental changes, you know, are necessary to, to move, move things along and make things even better. So I think we live in a, a wonderful time for healthcare and specifically for, for joint replacement. We're getting better biomaterials, better techniques, better um, understanding of how a patient will support the work that we do by yeah, yeah. preoperative preparation and, and postoperative uh, uh, care of the joint replacement. So all of these things are, are super important to me. And then I would say on the teaching level, we have a nice rapport with the Tufts School of Medicine. And uh, so working with uh, medical students who are just coming up and trying to figure out where their careers will go and how... Um, research and patient care fit together, uh, that's kind of fun to, to, to help them figure that yeah, out. Yeah, that's excellent. Well, uh, coming up on the podcast, I'm going to have your colleague, Dr. Adam Rana, as well as Ryan Mountjoy with the anesthesia team and Dr. Derek Bunch with the anesthesia team. Talk about this move of taking uh, orthopedic joint surgery to the outpatient setting, particularly 
motivated by the changes that COVID-19 has brought in uh, facilitating these cases or, or making facilitating these cases more challenging. Uh, I'm wondering if you would speak to uh, any part of that transition at, at bringing some of those surgeries to the outpatient environment, since we will be talking about that on an upcoming show. What, what's your take on it? Yeah, I think it's, it's very exciting. Our group has... Uh, had a lot of challenges with the COVID uh, situation, as most of us have had. But one of the positive things, one of the silver linings, if you will, is that we've um, figured out a way to accelerate our our plan to to have patients go home a same day or reliably within 24 hours. And that's not for all patients, right. but it's, I would say, for at least half of our patients. And, and we've had great success in figuring out who those patients are. And so that's a really exciting, you know, development in joint replacement surgery. And I think it dovetails with our talk today because not only is, you know, our perioperative blocks and pain management, multimodal pain management, a a critical part of that, but so too are the lessons of uh, minimizing patient risk through things like preoperative risk stratification, optimization of patients um, as far as uh, comorbidities, and then, of course, uh, intraoperative normothermia, perioperative antibiotic treatment, all of these smaller factors that add up to make a huge difference in the patient's outcome. Yeah, that's awesome. I love your focus on that, that it's these small incremental changes that we can make over time that do actually have a tractional difference on the patient experience perioperatively. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the challenges with that, if you will, is that our outcomes as we measure them are kind of coarse. They're not pixelated enough. So we have infection rate, but we don't, that, that's a conglomerate of all of these right. other factors. And the, the risk of that is, is so low that if you do a specific quality improvement project or research project on one aspect of that, it's difficult to show statistically significant better results. Yeah. So some of this has to come with intuition. Some of it has to come with a practical approach where we may never prove specifically if normothermia can better our already minuscule risk of infection without having hundreds of thousands of patients enrolled. So if we start with the premise that we can't measure that direct relationship, we have to find a surrogate. So if that surrogate is hypothermia and we measure hypothermia and we can maintain normothermia, the intuition is that if you had enough patients hypothermia would relate to surgical site infection. So again, you have to come at this a little bit more practically Mm -hmm. as we get better and better because the numbers to do a scientific randomized study are so daunting and so uh, resource intensive that it may be difficult to, to actually draw that line. But that doesn't mean a line doesn't exist. Yeah, absolutely right. And that, I think that pulls us full circle back into talking about specifically forced hot air warmers, you know, or disruptions to laminar airflow. You know, there, there are numerous things that can disrupt airflow or be sources of bacterial contamination in the operating room, not least of which is, you know, provider hands, whether that's the anesthesia team, the nursing staff, the CSTs, the surgeons, surgeons, uh, door swings, which you and I have talked about in the past, just in our, in our own clinical practice, you know, how many times are the OR doors opening during a, a joint emplacement surgery? So there, there are a multitude of variables that lead to the risk of surgical site infection or any other, you know, patient outcome that we might look at. And it can be very difficult to, to pinpoint, to say this one thing 
could, you know, if you do this one intervention, it's going to lead to a certain percentage of decrease of your surgical site infections. That's hard to show. But as you said, there are very practical things that we can do that seem to be supported with sound understanding of patient physiology, uh, you know, best outcomes in the research that is available for review. And we can focus on making those changes uh, perioperatively for our patients. I think that's, that's very well put. And I think if you have an overall concept of what's going on in the operating room with surgical site infection, that is to say, the room is very clean, but it is not sterile. Yeah. So if you start with that, then you realize that every minute that the wound is open, there are bacteria from the room getting into that wound. And so you're essentially in this battle between whether the patient's immune system, with our help, antibiotics and normothermia and things like that, can take care of the number of bacteria that enter the wound. So we try and minimize that with irrigation, with wearing you know, sterile surgical gloves and gowns initially. So it's essentially a mathematical battle, if yeah. you will. And so uh, whether those bacteria reach a quorum so that they can become pathologic. So it, it's fascinating. But if you, if you start with that approach, then there are, as you said, multiple different small moves during the OR experience, all based on that theme that can help minimize the amount of bacteria in the wound and maximize the patient's ability to clear those. And so, you know, the battle goes on and and we try and frame it in that way for our students so that they think of that global um, approach and therefore the small, tiny touches, they can make their own decision whether they're important or not, or you can do a a study to see if they're important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Very well said. It, It brings it into crystal clear focus that it truly is a team effort to get patients through the operating room safely. So agree 100%. Yeah. Well, Brian McGorry, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Is there anything else that you'd like to say on preventing perioperative hypothermia or quality improvement in general before we go? Not really. I think we've covered it. I do want to say thank you to you and your colleagues for this forum and for all the help uh, over the years and the ongoing help with our patients here at Maine Medical Center. It's been a it's been a real honor to work with you and thank you for inviting me today. Oh yeah. Brian, thanks so much. All right, so what is up with the bear hugger controversy? This story would be a fantastic episode of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. We've got the original inventor, entrepreneur, anesthesiologist who invented the bear hugger, waging a decades-long campaign against the device he created, legal battles, questionable studies finding their way into major medical journals published under clear conflicts of interest, an FDA clarification, a Cochrane review, and more. I have relied heavily on the reporting of Joe Carlson, a medical technology investigative reporter for the Star Tribune, as well as articles and reports from the New York Times, Drug Watch, Medical Journals, and the FDA, all of which are linked in the show notes to this podcast. My goal in laying this out is to be as objective as possible in summarizing the story so that you know where the healthcare and legal industries stand in regards to intraoperative use of forced air warming devices, including the bear. Hugger. So the Bear Hugger is a 3M product designed to warm patients in hospitals and operating rooms. 3M's competitors include Medtronic, Smith's Medical, Zoll, and others in what is estimated to be a $2.6 billion with a B billion dollar patient temperature management device industry. But the Bear Hugger has this unique history to it. 
It was created and initially marketed by the physician anesthesiologist Scott Augustine in 1987 through his company, Augustine Medical. Dr. Augustine ended up leaving the company in 2002 over disagreements with the board concerning the sale of the company, which would ultimately, after the sale, change its name to Arisen Healthcare Incorporated. Around that time, Dr. Augustine, along with Augustine Medical and others, were charged with felony Medicare fraud in a case that ended up with the company pleading guilty and paying $12 million in fines, and Dr. Augustine pleading guilty to a misdemeanor charge and paying a $2 million fine and being barred from working for any company that did business with Medicare for five years. Dr. Augustine subsequently sued Horizon for compensation related to harm and was awarded close to $5 million. In 2010, Horizon was sold to and became a subsidiary company of 3M for $810 million. Throughout the early 2000s and since, Dr. Augustine, the inventor of the bear hugger, has been on a self-described quote mission to get forced air warming out of implant surgery, end quote. That's his words. He goes on, quote, 3M has chosen to characterize that as, you know, Augustine's greedy or Augustine's crazy or Augustine is vindictive. From my point of view, I'm on a safety crusade, end quote. He really believes that these forced air warmers are linked to surgical side infection. He has since gone on to create Augustine Surgery, not to be confused with his prior company, Augustine Medical, which pled guilty to Medicare fraud. Augustine Surgery produces and markets a competitive to the bear hugger called the Hot Dog Patient Warming System. And if you want to read about the hot dog, I suggest you Google Hot Dog Patient Warming System, not just hot dog or hot dog warmer, as I dim-windedly did in succession before realizing that actual hot dogs and hot dog warmers are far more popular in Google search rankings than Dr. Augustine's hot dog patient warming system. All right, so there's a couple of more points that I want you to know before we wrap this up. There have been numerous studies attempting to find a link between bear huggers and surgical site infections, or even disruptions to laminar airflow in operating rooms over the last 20 years. I should mention here that the bear hugger is a medical device, obviously, and in order for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to approve medical devices, extensive research and critical review is undertaken concerning the device's safety. The FDA has issued numerous clearances of the bear hugger for its use in hospitals, including intraoperative use. The FDA, in response to the clamor around whether forced air warmers, including the bear hugger, were linked to surgical site infections, released a letter to healthcare providers in August of 2017 stating the following, quote, The FDA is reminding healthcare providers that using thermoregulation devices during surgery, including forced air thermoregulating systems, have been demonstrated to result in less bleeding, faster recovery times, and decreased risk of infection for patients. The FDA recently became aware that some healthcare providers and patients may be avoiding the use of forced air thermal regulating systems during surgical procedures due to concerns of a potential increased risk of surgical side infections, e.g. following joint replacement surgery. After a thorough review of available data, the FDA has been unable to identify a consistently reported association between the use of forced air thermal regulating systems and surgical side infection. 
Therefore, the FDA continues to recommend the use of thermoregulating devices, including forced air thermoregulating systems, for surgical procedures when clinically warranted. Surgical procedures performed without the use of a thermoregulation system may cause adverse health consequences for patients during the postoperative and recovery process. So I skipped a little section here that explained what forced air warmers are and to go on with the quote. Quote, to determine if there is an increased risk of surgical site infection when forced air thermal regulating systems are used during surgery, the FDA collected and analyzed data available to date from several sources, including medical device reports received by the agency, information from manufacturers and hospitals, publicly available medical literature, operating room guidelines, and ventilation requirements. As always, please follow the manufacturer's instructions for use in the operating room and or the post-operative environment, end quote. That's from the FDA's letter to healthcare providers in August of 2017, linked to in the show notes if you want to read that again yourself. A Cochrane review of active body surface warming systems, including forced air warmers, was published in 2016, the year prior to this FDA announcement. And it included 67 trials that looked at all kinds of findings related to patient safety with active body surface warming systems. And they found that, quote, nothing so far suggests active body warming systems pose a significant risk to patients, end quote. And again, they looked specifically at forced air warming systems like the bear hugger. In 2018, the second international consensus meeting on musculoskeletal infection convened with over 800 orthopedic infection experts. After reviewing the published literature to date, they voted with 93% consensus that forced air warming devices have not been linked to surgical site infection. Lastly, I want you to know about the legal battles that have gone on concerning the bear hugger. This is very interesting. Scott Augustine, in 2009, became a non-testifying expert for a law firm in Texas, which subsequently sued 3M, representing plaintiffs alleging that the bear hugger resulted in their surgical site infections during joint replacement surgery. Now, remember, you can sue anybody for anything. You can allege anything. Interestingly, from around 2010 to 2012, Augustine was also attempting to persuade 3M to abandon the bear hugger on their own accord and instead purchase his hot dog patient warming system. The fact that he was working for a law firm which was mounting litigation against 3M was disclosed in court proceedings in 2015. In 2018, 3M won an initial bellwether trial which concluded that the bear hugger device was not linked to surgical site infection. And then in August of 2019, a federal judge dismissed a multi-district litigation involving over 5,000 plaintiffs alleging links between the device and surgical site infection, citing insufficient evidence of claim. So these two trials are pretty major and very substantial in the, the ongoing saga of the bear hugger. So just to summarize... All of these cases were wrapped up into this multi-district litigation involving over 5,000 plaintiffs with Dr. Augustine's support of this uh, law firm out of Texas that was suing 3M. And this federal judge threw out all of the claims citing insufficient evidence linking the bear hugger to surgical side infections. So studies continued to be conducted on the bear hugger and patient warming devices in general. One study published in 2020 in the Journal of Arthroscopic and Related Surgery 
remarkably with no conflicts of interest disclosed, simply looked at the efficacy of the bear hugger compared with the endotherm conductive blanket warmer during shoulder arthroscopy. The study did not look at surgical sign infection, but found that the bear hugger effectively warmed patients a little bit better than endotherm, although not to a statistically significant level. Research will undoubtedly continue on both the efficacy of various warming devices and techniques, as well as whether these devices can contribute to surgical site infections. As Dr. McGrory stated, one key challenge in understanding links to surgical site infection is the required size of studies and strict control of variables when looking at this question. It would take a massive, prospective, multi-center, randomized, and strictly controlled study to definitively quantify the risk of surgical site infection of any particular patient warmer or other independent variable. To date, that study has not been conducted, but the summation of available evidence does not link forced air warmers, including the bear hugger, to surgical site infections, including during joint replacement surgery. If your hospital or surgical team is still concerned about this risk, Dr. McGorry's pilot study seems to point to effective patient temperature control measures that do not use either a forced air warmer or a conductive heat warmer intraoperatively. Remember, McGrory's and the whole perioperative team's effort to promote warmth and prevent hypothermia during this pilot study from pre-op to PACU could certainly be described as aggressive and they were also effective at preventing hypothermia. I'm very grateful for Dr. McGorry sharing his story on the podcast and for his passion for promoting quality outcomes at Maine Medical Center, including preventing hypothermia for patients undergoing joint surgery. All right, so stay tuned for an upcoming show on how Dr. McGorry and his colleagues, including Dr. Adam Rana and the anesthesia team at Maine Medical Center, have moved hip and knee replacement surgery to an outpatient same-day setting. These patients classically stayed overnight in the hospital, and due to COVID-19 and the restrictions of getting cases moved through the inpatient hospital setting, these surgeons were able to get their cases scheduled at the outpatient surgery center. The anesthesia team was able to change up their pain management program in order to get these patients effectively covered for same day of surgery, discharged home, and the outcomes were pretty remarkable. They dramatically reduced their length of stay, as well as reducing the dependence on opioids in the post-operative setting. So we're going to have that story for you coming up, uh, again, out of the same orthopedic surgical group at uh, Maine Medical Center. So we have a ton of podcasts planned for the next couple of months. Don't miss any of it. Bye. Go into the website, subscribing online. When you subscribe online, you're going to get an email that pops up every time a new show hits. You'll be the first to know. The website goes live with podcasts a, a day or two before they hit all of the major podcast players. So Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, we're on all those platforms, but it hits the website first. So if you want to know when the next show comes out, be sure to subscribe on the website. So don't miss a beat. Don't miss anything. We got a lot coming your way. And with that, I'll see you next time. Hey, y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcast? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.